Welcome to Storytelling. This week, we welcome a guest who is the author of the book entitled The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parents' Story, where she documents her parents' remarkable lives from the time they fell in love at Indiana School for the Blind through their challenges, determination and successes. Please welcome Mary Harper. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Mary, you've written this wonderful book about your parents. What inspired you to write their story? My parents led truly amazing lives, overcoming many, many obstacles to lead a pretty normal life for someone who had no vision. There are a lot of stories there that I just did not want to get lost. And I wanted to make sure I had them all down in writing, especially for my two children and then the grandchildren, since they would never know their great-grandparents. And it was a colossal undertaking. I didn't know where to start. There's so many stories to tell. Can you tell us about your mother? Because she was blind. I suppose for you, it was normal. What did it feel like growing up with your mother who was blind? You're right. To me, it was normal. We had certain rules, I guess. For example, never, ever, ever leave anything on the floor where they could trip on it. So we could play on the floor. And if they would walk into the room, I'd say, I'm here on the floor by the couch. And she'd say, okay. And then she'd walk around me. But if we ever left anything on the floor, we'd hear about it. Everything was very, very well organized. My mom needed to have everything in a certain spot, and you always put it back in that certain spot because she didn't want to waste her time and energy trying to find it. Because if you think about it, when you're blind, if it's not where you expect it to be, you go right to that spot, but then you feel around and you realize the scissors aren't there. So then you can't just look around for the scissors. You have to feel around for them. And that's very time consuming and very frustrating. So that was one big rule that she had. You know, you'd be amazed at what we couldn't get away with. (laughs) I remember I was, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight and hungry. This was right before dinner. And my mom's cooking away at the stove and she's frying something in the frying pan. And then I thought, oh, it's making enough noise. I can sneak up on the counter and grab a cookie. I climbed up as quietly as I could, and she's over there at the stove, and I reach into the cupboard, and I grab a cookie, and then she hears me, and she says, Mary, what are you doing? And I climbed down very quietly, and and I, by that time, had the cookie in my mouth, and I said, "Mm, nothing, Mom. She said, well, I know you have a cookie in your mouth. And I said, "Mm, no, I don't. (laughs) But she knew, and so she sent me in, and I had to, I think, set the table or something, but not a whole lot of punishment, but... We couldn't get away with much. Later, when I was older, it was in the 60s, and uh, miniskirts came into style. And of course, I wanted to be like everybody else. And it didn't matter if it was 10 degrees outside. I was going to wear my miniskirt. Uh, I have very cold legs, but that didn't matter. Before I could leave for school, she would often say, Mary, come, let me see how long your skirt is. And I would dutifully walk over to her while she's sitting at the breakfast table, and she'd reach over and She'd start at my waist and feel down, and she'd say, oh, she'd get to the bottom of the hem and say, that's just so short. I said, yeah, but mom, everybody's wearing it that short. It's okay. And she reluctantly let me go to school, but she knew everybody's clothes. She knew 
the touch of the fabric and the design of the clothes. I mean, she could feel, oh, it's short-sleeved, it's a sweater, it's a skirt, it's whatever. I remember another time when I was probably seven, and I said to her, Mom, I can't find my white blouse. It's not anywhere in here. She said, it is too. I just washed it and put it away. I said, Mom, it isn't. She was not happy to have to come up all the way up the stairs and come into my closet. She walks in. She moves like two hangers over. and She pulls out one and says, is this it? I'm like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Now, Mary, you have two good eyes and you couldn't see this blouse. I'm like, uh, so I never forgot that. It was almost a bit of a shame for me. Like, yeah, you're right. I should have been able to find that, but, uh. That just illustrates how she knew everything. She did all the laundry. It was interesting. She had a trick for my dad. With his socks, he only had black socks. Never had brown or black or white because they all had to be one color so she could make sure they were mated properly. It would not do for my dad to be caught walking downtown with one white sock, one black sock, for example. So tell me about your dad because... He was also blind, but he lost his sight during his childhood. Dad was four when he completely lost his sight. So he had very few memories, really no memory of color. He remembered black and white. For example, he knew intellectually that fire trucks were red, but he would know what a fire truck was and he would know the color. I really don't know that he could process that in his brain. He didn't care that much about his clothing. He didn't care that much about what, what with what my mother did because she had sight until she was 11 so she remembered colors so dad lost his sight rather traumatically well they were both born with glaucoma so they were both born with enlarged eyes and they both had symptoms of pain and I know my mom had lots and lots of headaches he managed to have an amazing childhood because his parents had one other child an older boy named Charles and they told him that well, Mario can't see now, and you are not really responsible, but you've got to let him play with you. So he took that very seriously, and my dad tagged along with Charles pretty much everywhere he went and developed an extremely close relationship with his older brother, who became his mentor. And I don't think my uncle ever regretted having that kind of responsibility because they had fun doing it. He taught my dad how to swim at the gravel pit, and they went there illegally. You're not supposed to swim in gravel pits because it's very deep and very dangerous. But, you know, that didn't stop them back in the 20s and 30s. They just This all takes place. They were born in 1913, 1914. Dad, even though he was somewhat dependent on his older brother, he was very independent-minded. He learned every street in Muncie, Indiana, the place where he grew up, He learned which direction they went. He figured out how to get to his father's candy store, which was in downtown Muncie, by himself. He knew every little curb, the alleyways, how to get there. He didn't have a cane. He had no assistance. He just would go visit with his dad, see what his dad was doing, maybe get something to eat. His dad had made his own ice cream and his own candies and sold various other things like popcorn and whatever. Uh, at this uh, confectionery is what they called it. Dad, from a very, very early age, was very independent and always wanted to be independent. It was interesting because my mom was independent in a way that was different than my dad. Dad learned mobility even at school. He went later and got a seeing eye dog and he was determined to earn a living so that my mother would marry him. She had told him, yeah, I love you, but unless you can prove to me that you can support me, I'm not going to marry you. 
And back then, how would a blind person make a living? Even now, it's not an easy thing for a blind person to do that. So dad followed the lead of his older brother, who became an attorney, and he went to the same uh, law school at Notre Dame University Law School, was the first blind graduate, passed the bar exam and began practicing law and did that for a year. And then that convinced my mom that she could marry him. So they didn't get married until they were like 28, 29. So how did your parents meet? At the Indiana School for the Blind in fourth grade. (laughs) Back then, the school was very, very segregated along the sexes. The boys sat on one side, the girls sat on the other. They were not allowed to talk to each other. They had separate dining rooms. They had separate playgrounds. They really were worried about these kids intermingling. That's why I named the book, The Sound of Your Voice, because how do blind people fall in love? can't see the person. You can't see what they're wearing. You can't see. It's, it's so much of falling in love is visual. But when you don't have that, then the voice becomes very, very important. So my mom in fourth grade was seated across the aisle from my future father. And she had to get up and recite a poem. And dad was mesmerized by that. In fact, he also memorized that poem. What was that about? 80 years later and was able to recite it word for word later. It was like, Dad, you remember that poem all that time after hearing it once? And he said, oh, yeah, when I would be lonely, I'd hear it in my head over and over. I'm like, oh, how romantic. So part of the story is a romance story. The School for the Blind did allow some mixers. They had very carefully supervised dances, I think, three times a year. And then when they were in high school, they were able to put on a production. There was a theater society that they were a part of. And they had no desire to be on stage and having to memorize lines, but they wanted to be in the chorus. So when they were not rehearsing with the chorus, the boys were supposed to be on one side and the girls on the other. But dad figured out that the curtain at the back of the stage was very thick and nobody could tell if they were behind there. So dad would meet her in the middle and they could talk and hold hands behind the curtain. Sounds really special. What would you say has been a highlight for you in writing their story? Finishing it. (laughs) It took me so long to figure out how to tell their story. It's a massive story. And I had trouble beginning it. And I wrote and rewrote and rewrote the first chapter many times. And then I finally said, forget that. I'm just going to go ahead and start telling the story and figure out then how to puzzle it together. My mom has her own story. My dad has his own story. And together they have their own story. Then you add in the fact that they had four children. And my dad was very active in politics. He was elected um, judge of two different courts, three different times. That's a story in and of itself. He was extremely active in the community and he did lots and lots of talks. He would take a Singai dog to speak to a Cub Scout troop or a Boy Scout troop or some church group. And It's fun to read old newspapers from back in the 30s, 40s. They would write everything my dad did. I mean, Mr. Mario Peroni and his dog Carla went to visit the Cub Scout Troop 200 at St. Lawrence Catholic Church, and he talked about his seeing eye dog. I'm like, okay, that's newsworthy. But he became very well known in the community. Uh, That's also part of what it was like to grow up with blind parents for me. I've always felt like I was on stage. We'd go out in public and... Okay, so I would be maybe walking with my mom. Dad would be with his dog. The three of us would be across, taking up a lot of room on the sidewalk. And people would look at us, of course, because, oh, there's a man with a dog. And 
a lot of people knew who we were. And I just felt like people were staring at us. So when I was originally starting this book, I was starting it as a memoir. And I actually had it named Stop Staring because I really hated people looking at me. It was like you're being under a, a microscope. Everybody wanted to watch you. And because my dad was well-known in the community, we always felt like we had to be perfectly well-behaved because we didn't want it to reflect badly on our parents. And on top of that, my mother was always worried that if she wasn't a perfect mother and the kids didn't look perfect, we could be taken away from her by the Children's Protective Services or Child Welfare. And that was a very real fear of hers. So we had to be clean at all times outside, unless we were wearing our play clothes and just playing around in the neighborhood, then we could get away with stuff. But she didn't want people to say, oh, Mrs. Peroni doesn't know that her children are dirty looking or have dirty faces because people were judging her all the time. Yeah. And you put all those memories together and like, how the heck do I tell this story? So finally came together. And that's why I was so happy when it was done because it was over 10 years in the making. That's amazing. I'm guessing being around two parents who are blind, that you yourself as a person growing up, you have heightened senses as well. Yes. They taught me really good things like, oh, listen to that bird. And to this day, I love being outside. Right now in Houston, the birds are starting to sing. It's starting to become warm enough and spring-like. And, oh, the birds are back. And I've had friends, a friend who was a bird watcher. She loves birds. And then she was just chatting on and on and on. And I finally said, it's quiet. I want to hear this bird. She said, what bird? <laughs> bird we're listening. I want to listen to. And she's strictly visual and I'm much more auditory. So yes, I tend to uh, listen to people's voices more than I do understand their facial expressions. And I'll explain why. Dad had, as a result of his childhood trauma, one very big eye, which was enlarged because of the glaucoma. And there was nothing in his other eye. It was just an empty sort of red spot covered up by his eyelid. And when he would get mad, I could always tell, because he would make that one big eye really big. And he would be trying to open up that other eye. And that was sort of scary because he couldn't really open up his other eye. And he had a scar on his face from a traffic accident they were in. And I just didn't like looking at him, to be honest with you. Now, my mother was a little easier because she had two artificial eyes. She decided she would have her eyes removed, and so she had glass eyes. And a lot of people couldn't tell that she was blind because they looked real. But I knew that sort of, they're not dead-looking eyes, but they're not showing any emotion. So I didn't learn how to read people's faces very well. It didn't do me much good to look at their faces. So I listen. I hear people's voices and I hear the tone within them. And I can tell a lot by people's voices. What would you say, because you went on to have your own family and how did your parent life or love story influence yours? That's a very interesting question. Well, we met in high school and I was in ninth grade. He was a junior, so he was 11th grade. And I felt it first. Then I saw him. Actually, we were in band together. I played flute, so I was in the first row. He played trombone, so he's in the back. And all of a sudden, I felt something wet on my shoulder. I'm like, what is getting me wet? And I turn around, look, and he's just back there grinning. He thinks that's hilarious because he had a sprayer to lubricate his trombone slide. And he always had water in it, so he thought it would be very funny to get me wet. Then a few days later, he calls me on the phone and says, hey, do you want to go out for a date? I'm like, wow, Mom, can I go for a date? I'm 14. 
yeah. They let me go. So we started dating at 14. I married him at 19 and happily married till he passed away uh, 10 years ago. I only knew one person and it's similar to what my parents did. They met in school and dated through school and got married and had their children and had a lovely, happy life until my mom passed. And she passed a lot later. She was 85 and she, she died, but uh, I never had anybody else. And same way with my parents. They knew right away that that was what they wanted. But interestingly enough, one of the things my sister told me was that when my mom was thinking back as an older person, she said, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'm not sure I would. She said, it was just so hard. And I'm like, wow, I know it was hard. But she didn't have many other options either. I mean, she was in love, and obviously, and she really wanted to live the American dream of having a family and her house and being able to be independent and live independently that most people don't think twice about. It's just part of life. But for her, it was a huge accomplishment. And for him also, for my dad, the alternative for them would have been, okay, mom would have been stuck on the farm with her parents and not doing much because her mother wouldn't let her. Oh, I don't want you in the kitchen. It's too dangerous for you, which drove my mother nuts because she could cook. She learned at school. My mom learned how to sew, crochet, cook, do things around the house, but her mother wouldn't let her because, oh, just too, too much worry. Mom had to fight all the time. But when they were first married, they had to live with his parents, my Italian grandparents. And so, of course, no woman was good enough for her, her boy. That's a real Italian kind of statement, I know, but she was so typical for an Italian grandma. Lovely woman, wonderful, loving, but wanted to spoil her son. And my mother complained a lot about that. So my dad would go off to work. They had to live in the same apartment or the same house for the first year because dad couldn't really afford his own apartment with the rent. Mom didn't have much to do because... Her mother-in-law wouldn't let her in the kitchen, wouldn't let her do the, you can't see, how can you do the laundry? No, you can't come in my kitchen. So mom had to sit around a lot. And I just know that if she wasn't married to my dad, she would have been sitting around a lot, forced to do not much of anything. And what a horrible life. And the same for my dad. He knew his future when he was thinking about it in school. One of the things they did with the teenagers was, well, we'll teach you how to play a musical instrument. If you're good enough, then maybe you can make some money playing violin in a bar or you can make brooms or and sell those or you can learn how to cane a chair. But none of those would provide enough money for himself, much less for a family. So that's why he had to think bigger and say, I'm going to go on to college and I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to be able to, to practice. So he did. I think it's nice to know that your parents' legacy lives on through you and you carry it off through the book beautifully. Oh, thank you. I just want to say, Mary, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for being a guest on this podcast. My pleasure. I appreciate your questions. If you would like further information about Mary and to order a copy of the book, then please follow the link in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs>